0: So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy The Politics of Everything. This marks episode 12 of The Politics of Everything. Our guest today is Annabelle Daniel, who originally trained as a lawyer with expertise in family law and discrimination before finding her true career calling in the family support arena. Annabelle has 20 years of experience in the private, federal government and community sectors. She's currently CEO of Women's Community Shelters based in the inner city suburb of Redfern but works with local communities all across the state of New South Wales. She has established three women's shelters in as many years and her overall goal is to achieve real change for the thousands of women who need access to shelters. Annabelle joins us today to discuss The Politics of Women's Shelters. Welcome, Annabelle. Thanks, Amber. It's a delight to be here. So in Australia and around the world, it seems that, you know, the first women's shelters sort of began in the 1970s, obviously well before my career and your career was underway. Can you give us a little picture of what the shelters were like in the 70s, how they got set up, and how were they even funded? Mm.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting story. And a great deal of this was – the outgrowth of, of awareness about women's and, and feminist issues generally that happened after the late 60s and into the early 70s, really around the time of second wave feminism. A great number of services supporting women were set up around that time, including, you know, recognition of no-fault divorce under family law, women's refuges, rape crisis and sexual assault services. And there was, there's a really lovely story about how Elsie Women's Refuge, Australia's first and only the world's second, which got set up by Anne Summers and, and a group of women. And that was around around a refuge in England being set up in in Chiswick, I believe it was. Anne actually made a long distance phone call and said, "Well, how do we actually go about setting up these services?" And and the woman who who picked up the phone with a lot of background noise going on, women and children, simply said, "You just have to decide to do it." And so a lot of the activism around that time and around women's issues was in the context of just getting stuff done, you know, really making a. a breaking through barriers and and making a positive difference. And in the early days, a lot of these services weren't actually funded by government. They were up and running first and providing services, and it was actually demonstrating that they were meeting a need, which then went on to secure government funding later.
0: Okay. So that's really interesting. It's probably very different to how it looks today. And I guess for a lot of people who may not be familiar with what the role shelters do play, we do have an image of them being associated with women fleeing domestic violence at home, and I guess – at that grassroots level, what vital role do women's shelters still play in these circumstances? Obviously sometimes women have young children with them. It can be a very, um, I guess, um, raw time for them. So what, what role do the shelters actually play? Well, they play an absolutely critical role in women's ongoing safety and one of the things that
1: always strikes me is that they are still just as necessary as they were over 40 years ago when the very first ones were established. In setting up three shelters in three years, as I've done with women's community shelters, it's never ceased to amaze me that within a week of opening each one, they're all full. And that is very much around older women who might have experienced abuse or or neglect for decades. It's about younger women with, with young children fleeing domestic and family violence. And these are absolutely essential services. And it's about so much more than just the safe roof over the head and food. These days we talk about, you know, in in the lingo of shelters, we talk about a case management approach where we make sure that every woman woman and her family, if she has one, has a very specific program that's tailored towards really important support and living a life free from violence. And that's around things like helping her find sustainable housing, connecting her up to medical professionals such as doctors and dentists and counsellors if she needs those. It's about helping her enter employment or education or training programs or finding the right payments from Centrelink. It's about supporting her with her kids to make sure that they get the right supports. So all of those things mean that these are absolutely an essential service. Now of course if it's safe and appropriate for a woman to stay in her own home that's often the best option but Shelters are desperately needed and, in fact, they're massively oversubscribed. Based on our shelters data, for every bed that we have available, we get five women who ask for it.
0: Right. So there's obviously a great need. And I guess one of the things you touched on when you gave us a little picture of who is actually accessing the shelters these days is the epidemic of older women, which I've read about recently. So a lot of women, say, over 55 who suddenly become homeless but they're also sometimes a little bit invisible in terms of the statistics. You know, I know a lot of them had long periods out of the workforce, maybe to care for young children or support the whole family network yeah, and have yeah. worked predominantly in the home, maybe without an income or any financial independence. So if there's partner, some suddenly leaves or they feel like they have to leave the situation or the partner even passes away, it seems like that's a growing, growing group. And I think I read somewhere that, you know, close to 10,000 mm. older women access these kinds of shelter services even just in the last financial year. So what do we know about this particular group? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head
1: with a lot of your comments. Look, some recent figures that I've seen have suggested that, that women over 55 accessing homelessness service services has grown 44% in the last five years. And I think that says a lot to growing inequality within society. You know, being in, if you're in a major city and you are single and on a low income, it is massively, massively difficult to be able to afford your own property and there's knock-on effects all the way down through the market. You know, the, the, the vast majority of the literature that we see or the, the media that we see around housing affordability and home ownership is how difficult it is for young people to get into the market, you know, young couples trying to get a starting life. And, of course, while that's absolutely critical and a really important, a really important group to focus on, what that means is that as housing becomes more unaffordable, people stay in rentals longer which then keeps the prices high and which squeezes out those people on a single income or those on lower incomes right out the bottom of the tube. So older single women can be incredibly vulnerable for all of the reasons that you've mentioned. They might be more casualised employment. They might have spent long periods out of, out of the workforce caring for others, either children or ageing parents or ageing in-laws quite often or even partners that might have had medical issues. And so they're incredibly vulnerable if, for example, they're on a single single income and covering the rent from casual shifts. if they, we've, we've had women fall into homelessness from losing one shift a week or having an accident wow. in an uninsured car, which has then led to, to knock-on effects and debts. And all of those things can compound very, very quickly, which puts you in a situation where, you know, you, you don't have a single dollar left to your name and, and losing the roof over your head. So it's a situation of incredible precarity for many of these women, um, and with six hundred thousand of them <laughs> Australia-wide demographically, uh, it will be a growing group in the next ten
0: years. Absolutely, and I guess I mean, was there anything that you think, from a government point of view, that could be done to change this? I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a, it's not just a shelter issue; it's a community issue. So, Absolutely. have you had any thoughts and brainstorms about how that might look?
1: Oh, uh, look, I think there are there are a great deal of policy settings that that need to be thought about at the top line levels. I think. First and foremost, what needs to be recognized in all new policy development is that is that homelessness and financial security are gendered issues. Women fall into homelessness for gendered reasons and we can 't lose sight of that seventy five percent of women 's homelessness is caused by domestic and family violence and that 's a huge statistic is, and I know australia doesn't yeah. do that
0: well in terms of you know <laughs> basically lowering those numbers
1: yeah look it's an ongoing project and and i 'm just i 'm I take a really positive spin on the fact that in the last five years we've seen a huge amount of awareness raised around this issue. Of course, what that means is is that when people know that there's help that they can reach out for, it creates a huge demand on services. We can raise awareness, but we also correspondingly need to make sure that we have the services available to uh, to catch people when they do ask for help. But um, exactly. there are definitely definitely some policy settings that that we can think about, and those are the kinds of things such as making sure, for example, that there's superannuation
0: paid on parental leave. It's totally fascinating to say that. I was at an event this week and that was something in a panel environment, all mm. female, a lot of them very successful entrepreneurs, but obviously there's that pay gap. And they were even saying, you mm. know, what if there was, you know, the – say you have a partner situation and the woman's out of the mm. workforce, what if the partner was sort of obliged, if you like, or encouraged to mm. contribute to super while women are at home? Because basically even if they go back, they don't really ever catch up, for example. No,
1: and that's the way that that, that when when the superannuation scheme in Australia, as, as massively innovative as it was at the time, it was very much predicated on male full-time average weekly earnings. And so, you know, it was assumed that it would be enough at that time for you know a full a full-time worker to support their family and as we know we've seen huge differences and shifts in the way that women and men interact in the workforce in the last 25 30 years and so we we need to think always with that gendered lens on you know if when we implement policy how is this going to affect women specifically will this ensure that they have a a satisfactory retirement to to recognize all of the unpaid labor or all of the unpaid emotional and caring labor that many women do throughout their lives—that's over and above their paid employment.
0: Absolutely. So, focusing back to your current role, women's community shelters obviously are doing things a little bit differently. Yes. And you've set up shelters in Sydney—three of them over the past few years: Hornsby, um, one in Foster, and one in Castle Hill. What does this model actually achieve, and how are you doing it differently?
1: Uh, look, it, every time I talk about it, I just—I keep getting really excited. The—the uh, the excitement never goes, even—even <laughs> even four and a half years into the project, and. Look, the way that we're doing it differently is by, really by working, really by working from the bottom up with local communities to establish these services where a lot of other, a lot of other government services are kind of provided in a programmatic top-down approach, you know, with contractors delivering services on behalf of government. And so what we do is, it's, it's four things. We were actually set up as a capacity building charity. So with the, with the model of working with local communities to set up new shelters where there were identified areas of need. And so what that means is, in practical terms, it's me getting in my car and going out to talk to various influential local champions who care about the issues of domestic violence and women's homelessness, bringing together a community of interest who has seen this issue presenting in the local area and actually wants to do something about it by setting up a shelter. And when you bring together a group of local community members on the ground who recognise this particular issue and want to take action about it, it is a super powerful way to work. So... We provide that capacity building approach and the project management to actually get a shelter off the ground. So that's helping that, that steering committee that you, you've helped form create the legal structure of the organization and all of the, uh, all of the charity status and requirements that are there. We help find a property. We help employ the right people to other professionals that actually conduct the day to day operations of the shelter and support the women. We provide advice about fundraising. And we generally generally support that that whole critical path from from the first idea to the doors opening of the shelter. Uh, and the next thing that Women's Community Shelters does is provides funding underwriting support. So the point where we say right, we'll go to a community is if a community fundraises twenty five thousand dollars, we'll match that with with the same amount, and that's our setup costs for the shelter. So essentially, what that means is. Costs about fifty thousand dollars to set up a shelter in a rented property, or a you know a property that's given to us. And, and
0: how long will that take to raise, generally? I mean, from the moment the idea comes up to when we actually see the front doors open. I mean, is that a year? Is it two? What's the lead time, generally? It's it's actually around twelve months. It's an incredibly fast way of working. And I had generally thought,
1: when you know, for raising that startup capital amount for the community, I'd sort of allowed in my head when we first got going about six months. And, like, almost universally with the three communities that we've worked with so far, well, actually it's five because we, the other two next shelters are, are over the line with their fundraising, it's happened in a matter of a month or two. You know, it's very, very quick when people get behind it. And so they raise that set-up capital and Women's Community Shelters underwrites two-thirds of the operating costs for the first two years. So that's a shelter costs about $400,000 a year to run, so we underwrite up to two-thirds of that and the community fundraisers are balance. And so... The the next thing that we also do is provide all of the all of the bits and bobs and the intellectual property that you'd need to run a shelter, which is the day to day policies and procedures. This is how you do case management. This is how you operate. Here are your job descriptions and templates for your caseworkers. Here's the computer system to log in the the casework that you're doing, so we make sure we get good reports and we can demo our impact. That's
0: deeply um, practical. I like that. That sounds like it's really helping yeah, look, get the ball rolling and yep. and get them going. Yeah,
1: absolutely. In fact, a lot of people have said to me, you know, the people who are on these shelter steering committees say, oh, look, if I was doing this myself, I wouldn't know where to start. But, you know, you're giving us what's essentially a shelter in a box and that's, you know, a very creative way of approaching it, I think. And the last plank of what we do is is that we hook all of our shelters together in a network. So we provide the staff with professional development and career pathway opportunities. We do governance training with all of the boards of the shelters and we, we bring them together for networking so they can support each other. And selfishly, that is absolutely the best bit of what I get to do. I have met so many, so many new friends and incredible people who I've worked with in communities. It's such a privilege. I can't believe who has come into my life
0: as a result of doing this work. It sounds like a win-win. So obviously you want to establish further shelters throughout New South Wales, and I know that you're already working on maybe half a dozen, might be more now, communities to expand the WCS model to every community you can. Tell us how you go about that. What, how, how we actually do it. Well, um, well, how, how if you want to expand, I mean, do you need, you kind of basically identifying the spots where you need it and just doing it or do you have to get some government buy-in? I mean, how are you going to keep expanding, I guess, the model?
1: Um, look, I think one of the things, when, when we first got going, we happened to be starting right in the middle of the biggest change in 35 years for the homelessness sector, which is the going home, staying home reforms in New South Wales. And I don't, you know, the... the fabulous Chinese saying which is may you live in interesting times and and that was very much how it felt you know it it felt like all of the existing norms had been upended and here we were starting I, I still can't work out whether it was the best or the worst time to try and do something new. But, uh, but you just did yeah, it <laughs> anyway, which I love. <laughs> in any case, you know we have we have really you know it's really kicked off since then, and I think we where it was very much me going out into communities in the early days. Now we've got communities approaching us and saying, "Look, we're seeing these women approach services in our community. There is nowhere for them to go. The refuges in neighbouring towns or suburbs, or suburbs are always full. We want to set up something ourselves. Can you help us?" and we get those kind of approaches regularly now, at least one a week. So it's actually a matter of sorting through what the priorities are rather than having to actively go out and seek those locations now. And that's, that's really exciting because I think a community-based model like this can go anywhere. It's not It's not fenced in by
0: state boundaries. That's fantastic. So looking back towards your career, I mean, prior to being CEO of of the organisation, you say one of your most important roles was being the manager of ELSI, which is Australia's longest established women's shelter, providing services and support to women and children experiencing homelessness and escaping domestic violence. How did that shape you as a leader and set you up for what you're doing now? Oh, wow. Well,
1: it was everything. Um, it's really interesting, and I, I find this in, in my career. You know, it, you often start off with a vague area of, of interest or or a direction, and then often it's only on reflecting and looking back that you realize just how much each role that you did prepares you in some sense for, for where you go next. It, when I was managing uh, at Elsie, which which really did feel like doing my feminist tour of duty a little bit was just it was absolutely great, But having worked at the Commonwealth Ombudsman and in the Child Support Agency previously, what I got to see was was really that there were people who were living, I guess, kind of on the edges, I I conceptualised, who really had not a great understanding of how government worked, how various layers of bureaucracy worked and how systems interacted with one another to to almost entrench levels of discrimination against women and their kids. And what I saw at Elsie was all of those a great deal of multiple and intersecting disadvantage right there in front of me. You had women who might have a language barrier, for example, uh, or be newly arrived in Australia. They might have had some level of intervention from child protection services. They might have experienced abuse. They might be homeless. They might have been kicked out of their home or told to leave. And so what what it really crystallised for me was just how much work there was still to do in terms of women's equality and how to, I guess, really use and mobilise my advocacy and my skill to really put a good underpinning under under this issue. And, and at the time, we were lucky if we got in the media
0: one article every couple of months about domestic and family violence. Yeah, the landscape's definitely changed and I think our ability as a society to talk about it, I mean, I, even the fact it's called domestic violence I I mean I've been a journalist I remember you almost didn't cover it because it was seen as well that's just a domestic that's literally what they used to say in a newsroom 20 years ago
1: yep yep yep
0: and it's not a community issue
1: only when you take it out of that context and you start to sort through the themes and the systems and the commonalities that you realize that this is a systemic and gendered issue that that women deal with so look at, at LC it changed everything it absolutely changed everything for me I realized I'd I'd found my niche and that this is work that I really wanted to do. Um, And the toughest thing about it was whenever we got a vacancy, I remember one particular day, we'd had a family move out the night before into their own home and we had a vacancy the next morning and I went out for a meeting for two hours. And when I came back, I was met at the door by three of my incredibly dedicated caseworkers, each carrying a clipboard with details on it of the women who were, were wanting to come in for that one bed. And, you know, and those ranged from a hospital social worker who had a woman there who'd experienced extreme abuse and it wasn't safe for her to go home. And so they wanted to uh, obtain that bed for her so she could be supported to leave the abusive environment. We had the police call with a young mother who would have been 20, 22 with two young kids and had experienced an incident of abuse and they needed desperately somewhere to place her. And the other was uh, a young mother who was in her car outside of Wollongong and she had two kids in the car and she'd been in the car for two nights. And she said, I will spend my last $30 on petrol to drive up to Sydney if you can give that room to me. And Wow, having, that's, a, that's a heartbreaking choice to have to make for one bed. Yep, having to make that choice, it's Sophie's choice every single day and that's what it's like. And I, And that got to me so much that I thought this should not be happening you know, at that time it was 2011 in Australia. This should not be happening in 2011 in Australia. And now in 2017 in Australia, I'm really be, I'm enormously proud to be doing something about putting over 100 crisis beds on the ground every night for women and their kids. So we have to do less of that saying we've got no room for you.
0: Absolutely. So your career has obviously spanned um, 20-odd years and you trained as a lawyer. Do you think you've kind of been able to make changes to the system when it comes to policies and the overarching i guess model of what you're doing now? Mm. do you think there's been some sort of if you look back can you see those points where there's been massive shifts and you're proud to say that you're part of that? yeah, look very much i'm about uh,
1: but but my my mode of changing changing things or changing policy is by doing things i'm I'm about action but just getting in there and solving the problems and then I think by by creating action, by creating results, by demonstrating good outcomes, that way you can put a push up on policy change. I firmly believe that, that domestic and family violence is it's kind of it's a big and scary issue and it encompasses so many areas that, that people kind of go, That's that's too big for me to solve on my own, I can't deal with that. But when you take a really complex social issue like that and you drill it down to the local level and you explain to people this is how it affects women in your community and this is how your business or you personally or your skills or your talent or your gift can make a difference to the women next door down the street you know right nearby then all of a sudden you've taken that scary issue and you've made it very tangible a lot of people a lot of people don't get the the structural concept but when you make it real for them by by making it close all of a sudden you've created a link and people can do something about it and i firmly believe but this is an issue we will solve community by community and not just, not just with women, but by engaging men. Our shelter projects very much welcome the engagement of men. We have men at our shelter boards. We have men who've given of their time and their talent to, to fix up our shelter premises and to do maintenance on them and, you know, to otherwise contribute. And that to me is solving the problem because I've watched communities go on the journey of not knowing very much about this issue to speaking in an incredibly educated way about it. You know, we create our little community team of advocates every
0: time we set up a new shelter and that's how I think we'll really see change on this issue. Yeah, it's a very, very powerful and compelling message and I guess I'm a big believer that um, no one really gets to where they are without some sort of, you know, I guess, mentors, either formal or informal or inspirational figures that you've kind of drawn ideas from and even motivation you don't have to name names, but do you have any people in your life that you sort of always think of when you when you're doing something big and making those big decisions? And how have they taught you to think differently?
1: Oh, look, yes, look, I've I've got quite a few. I am enormously, enormously enamoured and and girl over people like people like Dame Quentin Bryce, who just inspires me every single day with her with her grace, with her ability to connect with people. With her passion for women's and children's issues that has lasted a lifetime, and with her ongoing optimism and and belief that these are problems that can be solved, Wendy McCarthy and Summers, incredible women of action who get in there and and get things done. And you know, I went, I've, I've had the opportunity to meet all of them, and it's always a matter of not trying not to be star, starstruck when I do because I just have a a huge amount of admiration for each of them. I, you know, I, I follow what they do, and you know, and I aspire to have uh, long careers that reflect all of all of their achievements for myself as well. I'd love to do what they've done.
0: Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you've 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 definitely paved the way for your own journey. Just to wrap up, could you just close off by sharing, I guess, your big picture vision. For our listeners, on you know the politics and women's shelters, what what do you what would you ultimately like to see happen? Mm. Well, and this this
1: may sound a bit left field, I'd love to be out of a job. <laughs> I would absolutely love it. In ten years' time, we needed to close all of our shelters down because there was no reason for them to exist anymore. I would love to live in a world where there wasn't domestic and family violence. And I think ultimately, if you are doing this work, there's no other aim that you can have you are looking to a world where you make these problems redundant and that should be your aim every single day. But unless and until that happens, our shelters are here and they're very, very necessary and so I'm happy to be doing the work that I'm doing.
0: Well, it's been fantastic to have you on The Politics of Everything. If you do want to find out more about women's community shelters, there is some links in our show notes and you can also connect directly with Annabelle. You've been listening to me, Amber Danes. Until next time, keep well. It's been fantastic to read some of the latest reviews which have come in for The Politics of Everything. We've only launched somewhat six, seven weeks ago and the response has been overwhelming. I just wanted to acknowledge a couple of people who've taken the time to comment. And, for example, I've got here Emma Franklin Bell saying that the podcast, 5 out of 5, is insightful and interesting a fantastic podcast discussing a variety of topics. Amber is great at asking questions that draw out the guest's knowledge and views, a really enjoyable show. Thank you so much, Emma, for that. Ali Kane says, Amber rocks, a great and inspiring podcast for everyone in media and everyone who's not. And finally, I'd like to acknowledge one from the Celebrity Profiler on the 21st of June saying, content that hits the spot What a great series, excellent interviews with brilliant content. Thank you so much for your feedback and we do always look forward to all your comments and further more. Any ideas you have for future guests, do contact me at amber at bespokecoms.com.au and we will put you into the mix. Until next time. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's dot and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.